Hello friends and welcome to Inner Demons, the stories we tell ourselves. This one's called Art and the Resistance to Loss. There is something all too human about volunteering to be in pain. And for the last offering in the series, I will do my utmost to unsnarl the multitudinous entanglements of this marshland. In part, this offering dips into the unconscious rivers of the ancient and the mythical, the birthplace of depth psychology. I'll also be peering behind the curtains of suffering, punishment, and art as ritual to immortalize what and who we love. Last month, I visited my parents. My father didn't recognize me and defensively recoiled when he saw me. For a long time, I dreamt that things were different growing up. More of this, less of that, a dash of understanding to sweeten up the bitterness of grudges held. And for most of my twenties, as I dreamt, and wished, I became embedded into an ancestral patchwork quilt comprised of anxiety, grief, and resentment. I did feel that there was more to life than this, but the only thing that I knew to wish for was blood, in repentance, as punishment, as proof of life. I was bequeathed with only the meaningless and futile weapons of blaming corporations, governments, my parents, myself, which left me hateful and apathetic in the present, whilst hoping for a future I wasn't even building. I cemented my place in purgatory by cultivating lonely, depressive vortexes fueled by cynicism, regret and pretending I wanted to die instead of trying to actually live. Freud says dreams are wishes. The popular saying, be careful what you wish for, lest it come true, is from Aesop's Fables, the most influential collection of morality tales. And I've been thinking lately that, in a way, We've been telling each other through stories how to act forever. And about dreams and wishes. About how the tarot has been described as a spiral. How its ever unfolding secrets have been in the hands and minds of the ancient Egyptians, the Italian monarchy, and remain still past the dawn of the scientific age, evolving through tradition, skepticism, and reincarnation. I've spent over a month writing this. I've left it for days on end, restarted it, changed the beginning over and over. At times I felt so devoted to it, so sickened by it that I've hated every word, and even thought more than once, maybe I'll just not finish it. <laughs> uh, I originally pulled six cards to, to depict my take on punitiveness, but I recently drew the hanged man through my tarot journal ritual which I usually do in the morning, um, and it quite literally turned everything around for me. I had a hard time focusing and staying on one idea, thought long enough to even be able to write about it. And when I studied The Hangman, 
It felt like a call for me to stay in one place without giving in to the sense of dread that accompanies being still long enough to glimpse the real truths. We live in a world where we now have access to more information than humanly possible to assimilate. Nothing new, not telling you anything new there, but yeah, no wonder we feel like there is not enough time to fit everything in. There is not. Uh, And the hangman for me is the rebellion to the notion that because of our phones, or insert your reason here, we feel we need to be everywhere and everything at once. He signals a pause to take stock and remember what actually holds value to us. Our retinas receive every image upside down, relying on our brain to switch our perception so that we can move around in the world. As a matter of fact, we are quite literally always turning things around. The Golden Dawn, a secret society dedicated to studying the occult, uh, probably their most iconic member was Alistair Crowley, um, named this card the Drowned Man, uh, associating him with enforced sacrifice, punishment, loss and suffering. That in turn led me to contemplate over the punishments we freely hand out to ourselves when we go parent-teacher mode. If we don't always stick to certain habits or routines we have boxed ourselves into. And kind of let define our personalities in a way. Um, I'll roll off a few examples. If I don't have coffee, I can't wake up. If I don't smoke a blunt before bed, I can't go to sleep. If I don't stick to my diet today, I'll never lose weight. If I'm a Virgo, Pisces, or Scorpio, I can never fill in the blank. Uh, A lot of this month's schema is to do with that inner voice. So, and on a side note, I hope that whatever these offerings have been for you, that more than anything, they have been an invitation to drown slash surrender, to take responsibility for the self and then release it. It would be a bonus if they helped illuminate ideas and questions about what's precious to you. And I hope too they have let it slip that, in spite of our very understandable compulsion to want to heal wounds versus sitting in the bacteria to extract a learned wisdom from the past, lovely visual there, uh, that not everything is about healing. Some things are more processual than solutions-based. Words I'm donating my blood to this month are repetition, perdition, redemption, reincarnation. God of time and planetary ruler of Capricorn, Saturn, ate his children in an attempt to keep living in what he knew, in pure potential, afraid that producing a male heir would both diminish and devour him. The threat of mortality could be enough to make anyone cradle the pleasure of repetition. James Hillman points out that anyone familiar with that pleasure also knows what it's like to feel immune. So enter in scrolling on your phone too much, eating excessive amounts of mac and cheese, drugs, etc, etc. Freud has written of the adult psyche falling too easily into an unproductive repetition of what matters to it most. 
poets, lovers, painters and the like must continually reinvent ways of doing the same thing over and over again, lest it perish into insignificance and be stripped of its magic. Evidence of punishing ourselves in the name of love can be found in a myth that has been etched into carvings and tales for more than 2,000 years. Eros and their relationship to Psyche. It tells a history of the divine torture of erotic neurosis, the pathological phenomena of a soul in need of love, and of love in search of psychic understanding. Speaking of stories rooted into the psyche, the story of Christ, crucifixion to resurrection, is planted into our psychology, whether we are religious or not. And I'll be getting into that shortly. But first, to not to go too far from it, because, yeah, I guess this is kind of where Catholicism was born in Roman culture. So three weeks ago, I was in the 3000 year old city of Rome amidst the rich pasta dishes, hot black coffees and crusty bread. I was struck by my own awe. Almost everywhere I walked, the intensity of beautiful cobbled stone streets, towering buildings and agriculture affected me beyond description. Ever do that thing where you like something, a place, a person so much that instead of enjoying it, you worry about losing it? Yeah. Uh, Rome is a journal chiseled from stone. Churches with tiny windows filling the space with golden light illuminated painted figures emerging from the dark depths of a Caravaggio piece, fountains guarded by Roman water gods. I ate cheese every day, uh, in spite of my intolerance to dairy, and had the pleasure of spending time with some very talented people that make a living, a life from their art. It made me see even more that, no matter what you may achieve, the mind can quickly and cruelly turn on you convince you it's not enough, that you'll never be enough. Is that some kind of intolerance to accepting beauty? Uh, My holiday read was Lapvona by Atessa Moshveg. I won't spoil it for you, but it did get me thinking a lot about this month's schema. Self-induced punishments and pulling the stitches out from the fabric of our base desires was threaded deeply into the narrative's rotting flesh. It tied suffering to virtue that put you in God's favour, strengthening your case to get into heaven. It had me reflecting about how we can thicken up and hold on to stories of pain, and let's say concealing the truth as virtuous attributes that steer us into promising, fictitious mirages of peace. Below is a line from the book that perfectly encapsulates the punitive pattern. Jude didn't understand forgiveness. He was incapable of forgiveness because he was so addled by his own grief and grudges. Do we secretly derive pleasure from guilt? Does punishment fulfill a desire for justice? And when we repeatedly berate ourselves for not committing to our healthy routines and loved ones, is there a manufactured satisfaction from living in the potential of being better tomorrow? As Henry James has alluded to in Beast in the Jungle, are we so hung up on chasing the elusive beast, the key moment that will unleash us, gift us freedom, that we forget to let go of controlling outcomes and live? 
thus forfeiting the chance to encounter spontaneous moments of joyous splendour? What if we, like the hanged man, took a chance to turn things around a bit and took a look from another angle? If I conjure images of perdition, I arrive at the gates of eternal damnation, hellfire, complete and utter ruin, the casual stuff. I wonder if we don't drag ourselves right up to those heavy iron gates sometimes by repeating doomed behaviours. All of this uplifting thought led me to the cool waters behind the pillars of the High Priestess. When she comes up in a reading, it can be a call to acknowledge what is not being said. In an attempt to tuck away our secrets, to shield ourselves from freely expressing truths we feel will blow our lives up, they come out in our habits, relationships and behaviours that tend to subvert our free will. And I think part of that is to do with us wanting to remain desirable. As we were recently in Libra season, and now at the base of Scorpio season, I feel it appropriate that I'm writing about this schema during this time, so close to the signs most likely to punish themselves. Libra for not being lovable for who they are, and Scorpio for not being seen for who they really are. Both share being relentless hunters of beauty to prove that unconditional love really exists. Both signs can also create prisons of loneliness by withholding their true feelings. Which is actually easier said than done to not do. Uh, I get asked a lot in my work whether I believe in astrology. How much I vouch for its credibility to predict who we are, what will be. Um, the ongoing debate toward the validity of free will is often a subject that gets brought up when questioning the credibility of occult practices in general. In my view, I'm not here to steal your fate or tell you how many kids you're going to have. If the tarot has taught me anything, it's how little we tend to use our free will. And I honestly don't have an answer because I'm not set on a de definitive observation of anything. Everything is in a constant state of flux. What I do know is that occult practices approach how we can communicate and understand each other, psychologically, spiritually, and are also a means to convey our values to one another succinctly, symbolically, and with some ancient system that doesn't rely on logic alone. Because I feel deep down having to prove and rationalize all of life can be a not only lonely endeavor, but a spiritless one. And that's just not who we are as human beings. We don't want to be lonely. And generally speaking, most of us like a bit of sparkle, a bit of magic and mystery in our lives. Sparkle is in my vocabulary this month because I went to the vet with my cat Baxter and one of the cats was called Sparkle. Anyway, back to it. Uh, yeah, a bit of magic and mystery in our lives, no matter how much we try to prove the opposite. <laughs> uh, painter Fernand Knopf, who some might think was a bit of a miserable bastard, uh, and who I'll talk about very shortly, proved this in his work time and time again. But first, let's talk about free will a little bit longer. Love him or hate him, uh, Jordan Peterson has talked extensively about free will. 
the Bible and existential truth. He has made some noteworthy points that are worth considering. In a video about death and resurrection, he says, We are constrained, and severely so, by the manner of our corporeal being. We are subject to a deterministic rules in a seriously profound manner. We do not have the power to shape things in any old way whatsoever at any time or place, but we can certainly and demonstrably and apparently willfully advance in the direction of our imagination and in quite a staggering and compelling manner. Is this not indicative of who we genuinely are? Is this not uh, perhaps the primal existential truth? It takes courage to love people. It takes faith. It takes an energy that we'll never understand. We don't have a complete explanation to love. We just do it. Is that beauty? Is that worth hunting, longing, and foraging for? Uh, speaking of faith, uh, there's a really beautiful line in the book that I read over the holiday. Uh, Latvona. And the thing Lisbeth despised most in people, or at least how she imagined people to be like Marek, was their expectation that faith ought to be painless, as if faith required no effort. Anyone could whip himself and say he's faithful. Real faith was earned through self-denial. Is faith inherently speckled with pain? How does that verse sit with you? All of this talk and pain reminded me of Nick Cave talking about art and I guess its redemptive features. Um, so, art does have the ability to save us in so many ways. It can act as a point of salvation because it has the potential to put beauty back into the world. And that in itself is a way of making amends, of reconciling us with the world. Art has the power to redress the balance of things, of our wrongs, of our sins. By sins I mean those acts that are an offence to God, or if you would prefer the good in us, that live within us, and that if we pay them no heed, harden, and become part of our character, they are forms of suffering that can weigh us down terribly and separate us from the world. I have found that the goodness of the work can go some way towards mitigating them. Self-forgiveness is a potent antidote to cynicism. Um, cynicism, which in that paragraph I just read, I think is what Cave is alluding to when he talks about hardening from mistakes or regrets we may carry. And this pessimistic layer forming a thick crust over our characters. Uh, the seeds of cynicism can be found in the withholding of forgiveness. But... Is there any use in suffering, you might be asking. So, step in Fernand Knopf, who... So the painting is from a friend and tattoo artist, Tracy. Um, Tracy D on Instagram. And uh, it, it's inspired by uh, a painting called The Sphinx by Fernand Knopf. Um, so, yeah, anyway. 
He was a painter, draftsman, sculptor, and true introvert who constructed a profoundly perplexing, dreamlike pictorial universe haunted by a tall, distant, ambiguous feminine, idealized with cold, pale eyes. His sister was his muse and only real reference reference point for a woman for most of his life. He was considered the master of the symbolist movement which glorified the withdrawal into oneself and the inner vision, pulling from the Greek myths, the cult, and his own personalized symbolic chamber. He harbored no interest in illustrating the modern world, whether using paint, pastel, or pencil. He chose instead to focus on symbolic representations of his favorite themes, absence, impossible love, and withdrawal dropping clues and symbols so the beholder could try to interpret his worlds. His family moved around a bit during his early childhood, and from the research I've done, this caused him uh, great pain. Thus, absence was an integral theme of his work. Without suffering and longing, his work littered with pride, isolation, cruelty, and disdain would not have existed. The life he presented was one completely devoted to art. And now, what's the most famous story on suffering? You may be asking. (laughs) Uh, The crucifixion is testament to the psychological truth that the soul is driven most deeply by images that are gnarled, uncomfortable, in pain. Hillman suggests that, pathologically, our culture has been dominated by the prodigious image of Christ, the complexity of psychopathology, with its rich variety of background, has been absorbed by this one central image and been endowed with one main meaning, suffering. Suffering for someone we love can be a way to communicate how much we value them. If you're willing to suffer for what you value, you exhibit directly how much you value a person, or even a faith. And I guess, whilst we're talking about value and all that kind of stuff, uh, it's good to remember one small truth. You thrive if you treat yourself and others as if they matter. I'm not saying go do the suffering, but, you know. The word passion comes from the Latin word for suffering. So, good. Um, (laughs) um, The Passion of Christ is not just a film directed by Mel Gibson, but also the story of Jesus Christ's arrest, trial, and there's that word again, suffering. Uh, it sort of ends with his execution by crucifixion. But the passion is one part of a wider story and cannot be pro- properly understood without the story of the resurrection. And the resurrection is a symbolic demonstration of Jesus being a powerful son of God in being able to conquer death. Um, and a TV show that uh, is actually quite a good mixture of kind of these questions on religion 
uh, and sin and all of that is uh, The Sopranos. And there's this really touching scene when one of the main characters in it, her name is Car- Carmela, she is um, looking at this painting of these figures piercing through to sacred realms. It's called The Mystical Marriage of St. Catherine uh, with her daughter Meadow. And the painting is of a woman holding a baby. And she cries because she sees her husband and her son all at once. Uh, Carmela had high standards for herself in life and to live one way she had to relinquish an arguably more principled way of living. She almost certainly unconsciously longed for. She cried, I think, because instead of being a lover, she was a mother. Um, She almost certainly bore lots of pain for the family, the life that she led. And I use her as an example because she so clearly demonstrates how it was at times worth it for her. But just as many times so not worth it Uh, and for me more than anything it captured her loneliness as a grown woman in role of mother she would always be needed but not seen as a sexual being it's Scorpio season so let's be honest about how important sex and sensuality in our lives is and the last chapter i promise um if images and words have trapped us then images and words can free us lithuanian born american filmmaker artist and poet jonas mekas wrote the caption below on a series of still photographs Uh, he named them to new york with love you look at the sun then you return home and you can't work You're impregnate with all that light. I think moments of awe save us. Art saves us. Literature saves us. And um, there's something about that line from Mechas which just kills me. Two years ago when I started Inner Demons, I wanted for the first time in my writing to somewhat coherently explore isolation, love, relationships, sexual identity, success, failure, gratitude, nature, the seasons and the joys and struggles of creative life. I'm fascinated by how our fears and desires spill into art. In the age where we have commodified desire, I believe that in one way or another, that many of us are punishing ourselves for failures in matters of the heart, art or money. Queen of Cups, poet Sylvia Plath wrote about sacrifice and love more often than not. And her heart is a really cool line from one of my favourite poems of hers. I hurl my heart to halt his pace, to quench his thirst I squander blood. He eats and still his need seeks food, compels a total sacrifice. His voice waylays me, spells a trance. The guttered forest falls to ash, appalled by secret want. I rush from such assault of radiance, entering the tower of my fears. Plath entered the lion's den and moved past fear. 
the very cost of admission to the sacred profundity of love. In the end, she paid with her life, leaving behind wonderfully excruciating and beautiful poetry. Nick Cave, who is no stranger to death and has endured the loss of two sons, had this to say on life being so fucking short. In a way, my work has become an inexplicit rejection of cynicism and negativity. I simply have no time for it. I mean that quite literally, and from a personal perspective, no time for censure or relentless condemnation. No time for the whole cycle of perpetual blame. Others can do that sort of thing. I haven't the stomach for it. All the time. Life is too damn short. In my opinion, not to be awed. The tarot encompasses all religions, beliefs, and the profound that we can't even begin to make sense of intellectually. It is an invitation to both the fall and the elevation of ourselves beyond cerebral intellectuality to, as Plato himself aspired, reach the heights and depths of trans-cerebral thinking, thought that is not conceived but seen. In the ritual of interpreting the cards, we make bonds with images, words and meaning through the sacred, wordless art of connection. We search within symbols, dipping our swords into perilous deep inky wells for faith and courage to illuminate the unknown. James Hillman has written, Our complexes are not only wounds that hurt and mouths that tell our myths, but also eyes that see what the normal and healthy parts cannot envision. Depth psychology is a careful exploration of the parts within us which fall, releasing the gods and demons in our complexes and realising, as Hillman so eloquently puts it, that all our knowing is in part only because we know only through the archetypical parts playing in us now in this complex and myth now in that our life a dream our complexes are demons all of us are fallen creatures thrown into a world of death and despair all of us savagely crucified on the cross the stark reality of life to fight against that fate is somehow even more painful, transforming tragedy into some hellish landscape. The acceptance of the absolute certainty of our sorrows, instead, could perhaps be a form of transcendence. What it for sure is, is a display of courage, truth and love. Are they more powerful than despair and desire for vengeance, blood? To believe that courage, truth and love are mightier than death and despair is really quite something. And all of that is basically what Easter is about. <laughs> uh, the death and resurrection of Christ. Of course, the chocolate eggs are a bonus if you're into that. Um, I also just now thought about the hanged man, uh, about how he is the opposite image of the crucifixion. So, yeah. And after all that serious biblical talk, the quote I'll end this project on is by poet Philip Larkin. I'm a hopeless romantic, what can I say? What will survive of us is love. I write to you because I don't understand myself. 
In this project, I found and lost my voice, mind, and faith countless times. Thank you for being here. So, yeah, cool. Have a great month. Bye.